So the first question is from Genesis chapter 4. So let's begin at the beginning, all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. And right at the end of the chapter, we have this statement. This is giving the family of Cain and then the new son. And and in verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And the question is this, at the end of Genesis 4, what is the significance of the phrase, then men began to call on the name of the Lord? Does it mean that they didn't before, that they did not do it before? And I do think that that is one of the implications of it. It's an interesting statement placed here where it's placed. And uh, I was reading just a little bit this afternoon, the brief time I had before our Global Outreach Committee on some commentaries here. And some have suggested that because uh, how things were, you know, you have Cain killing Abel. And, and even though this is fairly early on in the history of mankind, there is a recognition that, you know, we're, this is bad. Things are bad. We're sinners. And maybe that's what prompted men to begin to call on the name of the Lord. Um, and that wasn't something that they had practiced or thought of before. So just short answer to your question Uh, Does this mean that they didn't before? It certainly does seem to be the implication of the way it's stated that there was something significant or new in this and that prompted them to begin calling on the name of the Lord. Our next question says this, um, why do you have a stand to close in prayer at every question and answer and not at other times? Uh, Don't take this wrong. I enjoy it, but was curious if you had a special reason uh, I have no reason whatsoever. I didn't even know I did that, really. <laughs> uh, probably more out of habit. It's just, uh, I suppose it's the end of the day, end of the Lord's day, and we have concluded, so let's stand as we're about to leave. And so, uh, you know, I wish I could tell you it's based on a verse in Ecclesiastes or something like that, but uh, no, no specific reason why. All right, next question says this. Uh, could you please... Describe the difference between covenantalism and dispensationalism. Very good question. Um, Covenant theology and dispensational theology are basically the the two schools of theology in Christianity today. And I'll just start from the basic. I know a lot of you know that, but some of you maybe don't know that. So the two schools of thought are covenant theology and dispensational theology. Now, Uh, Because those are schools of thought and theological systems, it would be utterly impossible for me in just a few minutes to explain either one of them without going into a lot of detail because there are a number of differences between them. But I think if you want just a simple distinction, a a simple distinction between them or what divides covenant theology from dispensational theology really comes down to the question, is God finished with Israel? That really is the most fundamental issue Uh, because covenant theology basically, and again, there's all sort of nuances of covenant theology and nuances of dispensational theology. Some dispensationalists would be very tight. Dispensationalists see seven very specific dispensations from the beginning of time, and others would say that's kind of arbitrary and and, you know, and covenant theology, again, would have a lot of different nuances. But really, covenant theology basically believes and teaches— that we, the church, 
are the, and here are the terms that are used, we're the new Israel, we're the true Israel, uh, we're the spiritual Israel, we've replaced Israel, all that to say God is done with Israel. Whereas a dispensationalist would say God is not done with Israel. He made unconditional promises to Israel all the way back in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 15, 17, and that those promises will someday be fulfilled. And so therefore a dispensationalist would believe in a future literal kingdom for Israel. Israel was clearly promised a kingdom. Jesus came saying, you know, promising a kingdom if you'll repent. Of course, the nation of Israel didn't repent. Uh, so really that's, again, there are a lot of other issues, but when you boil it all down, that is probably the most fundamental difference between covenant theology and dispensational theology. Because for a lot of dispensationalists and covenant theologians, they would agree on all the other areas of theology. In other words, I know a lot of covenant theologians and dispensational theologians who would agree on theology proper and Christology and soteriology and homardiology and angelology and pneumatology and all of those. But where the divide comes when you, when you look at it from, from theology is the two areas where covenant theology and dispensational theology do not agree. The two areas of theology are ecclesiology and eschatology. Ecclesiology is the theology of the church. Dispensationalists believe the church began Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. Covenant theologians believe that the church is just a continuation of Israel, and it's, as I said, the new Israel. So uh, the ecclesiology is quite different. And by the way, this has a lot of implications now, again, with infant baptism, why you practice it or don't practice it. That's why I said, don't take this brief explanation as any kind of exhaustive answer on the subject, because if you believe we're the new Israel, the true Israel, then that gives more credence to your view of infant baptism, because you can try to parallel it with circumcision at eight days and all of that. If you believe the church is a distinct entity, began on Pentecost, Acts 2, uh, then we're not Israel. Israel is Israel. The church is the church. And so the ecclesiology would be different, which leads to a different eschatology. Because if you believe that the church is Israel, by the way, there's no question Israel is going through the tribulation. Israel, the tribulation is primarily for Israel. So if your ecclesiology is that the church is Israel, then clearly the church is going through the tribulation. If you believe the church and Israel are distinct entities, then maybe the church is not going through the tribulation. So that would affect your view on pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. It's going to affect your view on amillennial or post-millennial or pre-millennial because a kingdom was promised to Israel. If you believe the church is now Israel and all of those promises are spiritual, then you don't need a kingdom. You can say, well, this is the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a literal kingdom. So again, uh, covenant theology, dispensational theology may agree on every theology right down the line until you come to ecclesiology and eschatology. And that's where the separation begins, uh, or that's where the separation exists between ecclesiology and eschatology, but all of that is centered on what do you do with Israel? Are we Israel or is Israel Israel? So that's why I say if you want to boil it down to the most basic, it is a view of Israel. All right, next question says this. Um, how do we reconcile the Old Testament times of David and Solomon and their countless concubines with the Mosaic law, which says no adultery? Uh, the New Testament is clear, let there be no hint uh, about uh, immorality. And then the New Testament is clear about one man, one woman in a marriage covenant. 
This is a very common question. I probably get asked this at least once a month, if not in question and answer, just people wrestling with this issue. Uh, I'll give a few thoughts, but it's a little more complex than, uh, than also can just be stated very you know, succinctly in a five-minute answer. Uh, but let's just back up. At the very beginning, it is clear that God's intention was one man, one woman for life. That's, that was his creation pattern created Adam, he created Eve, and so by his own pattern, his intention uh, was clearly being illustrated or demonstrated that, yes, one man, one woman, not multiple wives or multiple husbands or whatever, because there was just one. God created Eve for Adam. There were no spares, no alternatives, right? You know, when Adam said to Eve, honey, do you love me? She said, who else? There's nobody else to love, right? So that was God's intention, one man, one woman for life. But, of course, the problem was that sin entered, and sin messes up everything. So when sin enters, now you start having also not only sin in the sense of men taking multiple wives. You say, well, that's sinful. Yes, probably, but, but hold the thought for a second. But more where I was going is when sin enters, and then you start having war. And by the way, if you just, you've, surely you've read the Old Testament. It's just dominated by the subject of war. So if you have all these wars, and you have men being killed all the time, uh, then there's a very high likelihood that in society you've got a very, uh, you know, uh, disjointed ratio between men and women. Far fewer men. So what do you do in a society which does not have social security? Women can't get jobs. There's no way to support themselves. Well, as a sort of condescension, if you will, uh, to the situation, there were occasions where men would take more than one wife. And in a sense... In a sense, now please hear me fully, it wasn't a terrible thing because it, it was a stopgap measure to somewhat solve the problem created by sin. But because that became a part of society, it is true that in the law, the Old Testament law that God gave to Israel, God told the kings of Israel that there were three things they could not multiply into themselves. Wives, horses, and gold. God specifically stated those things. So a king of Israel who multiplied wives unto himself was violating the law of God. But the fact that God told the kings that implied that he knew or understood that that would not be uncommon in society. So you say, was it right? Was it wrong? Well, it was it just what it was. I mean, it was... It was a part of society, and in one sense it met a need, a difficult need. It was certainly far less than God's design, but it's not as simple as just saying, well, every man in the Old Testament who had more than one wife was an adulterer. Not necessarily, because adultery is having uh, physical relationships with someone who's not your spouse. So if the person was your spouse and you've got two wives or three wives or whatever, that's not technically adultery. Now, it's less than God's ideal, but it's not adultery. So that's why I said it's not as simple of an issue to address as just, well, these men, if they had more than one wife. I mean, listen, you've read in Samuel, you've got the story of Hannah. You know that story and her husband, Elkanah, and it says he loved her more than the other wife and he kept having babies with the other wife. Now, I've heard a lot of Mother's Day sermons, by the way, on Hannah, but every preacher I've ever heard just sort of slips around that issue. How are we going to handle that one on Mother's Day? So, you know, but that's just the what it was. I mean, he had two wives. And Hannah, of course, was barren. You know the story. She cried out to the Lord. The Lord heard 
her prayer, and, and she was given a son that she gave back to the Lord, etc. But it was just a part of society, less than God's ideal. But I don't know that I could agree with you and call it adultery. Uh, it just, it's, it's, it's an illustration of the complication that sin causes. I remember years ago when I was in uh, Kenya and uh, among the Maasai ministering, and one day we took a drive out and met my translator's dad. He wasn't a believer, but he had four wives. They each had their own boma, their own hut, etc. And, and uh, you know, I talked to my translator, who's a committed believer. You know, what does a man do when he, if he becomes a Christian in your culture, and he's got four wives? What does he do? Well, you might think, well, the obvious solution is you, you divorce the three that were the last three. Keep the first one. Well, you've basically just consigned those three women to prostitution because they have no other way to support themselves. So is that the solution? See, it's just not as easy as sometimes it seems. So, yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, you know, for David to multiply wives, Solomon to multiply wives, that was clearly against the law of God because God told the kings of Israel not to do that. But I'm not convinced that you could say every man who had more than one wife was automatically an adulterer. I don't, it wouldn't fit the definition of adultery. And uh, so, but you're right. Now that you come into the New Testament era, it's not really an issue because in Romans 13, we're told, told to obey the laws of the land, and the laws of the land are polygamies against the law. So it's really simple. But uh, it's not as simple in the biblical context where polygamy wasn't against the law. In fact, it was a part of culture, etc. So it's a tough issue to wrestle through. Our next question says this. Uh, just reading the Bible and thinking about the word glory, how many different ways it's used. We glorify God. When we die, we go to glory. Uh, could you please just explain or expound on that? And you, uh, you are exactly right. What this illustrates is that, uh, and this is a technical study, but a technical study of languages and how they work, you get into semantics and, and those studies. And what you find is that contrary to how we were often taught in school, words do not have a meaning. Words have a range of meaning. Uh, so it's not accurate. I know we're ta taught very early on, you know, find the meaning of the word. Well, even in English, you understand this. If I were to ask you this simple question, what does the word bank mean? How are you going to answer that question? Well, I can think of already three different ways the word bank is used. It's a place you deposit money. It's a place you stand when you go fishing. It's a kind of shot in basketball. So you can't answer the question, what does the word bank mean? You can say that the word has a range of meaning, and how the word is used in a specific context gives it meaning. And it's no different, by the way, with Hebrew words or Greek words. They have a range of meaning. The word glory has a range of meaning. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word is being used there to say all have sinned and fall short of God's perfect standard. But when we talk about giving glory to God or glorifying God. We're not saying give him his perfect standard. We're talking about exposing his attributes and exalting his person. And then when we talk about going to glory, that's a whole different thing. It's talking about going to be with the Lord, which is a glorious place. So uh, in answer to your question, the word glory is used in a variety of different ways in Scripture. And you have to look at each usage to find out what the word means in that context because it has not just a meaning, but rather a range of meaning. Our right, next question is back in Genesis also, chapter 2, verse 24. This is a part of the marriage account. 
uh, it says this, Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The question is, does this mean that he should entirely separate from his parents and not want to spend one-on-one time with them? Should he not want to take advice and counsel from them, especially when it might contradict what the wife wants? Well, this is a really good question because it's in, this has always been a fascinating one to me because here you have this admonition, this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and you don't have to read very far in Genesis and you find that every guy who gets married stays with his parents. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you just, you know, so Isaac gets married and rather than him going, a wife is brought to him and he stays Right by Abraham, his dad, and then Jacob. Well, eventually Jacob has to leave, but it's because he thinks his life's in jeopardy from his brother for the things that he did. And then throughout the Jewish culture, it it didn't work that way. And even on into the New Testament, Jesus alludes to this. I mean, I'm talking about the way it works in culture. In, In John 14, where he says, I go to the Father's house to prepare a place for you. There's no question whatsoever that Jesus was referring to the marriage custom of the Jews, where when a man was going to take a wife, to prepare to take a wife, he would build onto his father's house to get a room ready or a place ready. And once it was ready, on an unannounced day, the wife or the wife-to-be always had to be ready. And he would come and take his bride. And then they would go to, uh, to the, the father's house. So uh, my point is that you don't find anywhere in the Bible where the man leaves his father and mother. Now, I'm not suggesting, therefore, that just because that's the way they did it, that they weren't wrong. Maybe they were wrong. But I think actually what it points to more is that the point of the passage isn't as much about proximity as much as it is about devotion and commitment. In other words, what it is saying is this. When you get married, whether you're a man or a woman, your new, your new devotion, your new allegiance is now to your spouse. We, we use this expression here in the West. Sometimes we talk about, you know, cutting the apron strings. In other words, you can't, you, you've got to, you form your own family. The two of you form your own family unit. Now, you may live next door to parents, or you may live a thousand miles away, but listen, you can live a thousand miles away and have not cut the apron strings, and you can live next door and have cut the apron strings, right? So it's not really about proximity. So what God is saying here is that you need to understand that for marriage to work well, that you have a new commitment, a new family, and that you, you, you have a, your first allegiance is there. And so in answer to your question, uh, would it be wrong to spend one-on-one time with your parents? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to take advice from your parents once you get married? Absolutely not. In fact, you'd probably be unwise not to, you know, to just say we'll never listen to our parents again. That's, that's not a healthy or wise way to go. Uh, but what it is saying is that there are times when you as a family, you as a husband and wife, are resolved on something, and maybe you're convinced that this is the, Lord, the way the Lord wants you to go, and one of your, your parents is, you know, trying to get you to go a different direction. You're forced with a dilemma. Where do you choose? Well, God says you choose your spouse at that point because that's the priority relationship once you get married. So you don't choose neither neither the husband or the wife should choose parents over spouse, which is a recipe 
for disaster. Now, again, doesn't mean you're disrespectful to your parents at all. Doesn't mean you disregard them. That's not what we're talking about. But we're just talking about, you know, uh, I know one guy who said uh, to his mom in a very respectful way, and it was totally appropriate, but just because she still tried to control him and control the marriage, he eventually said to her, Mom, please don't make me choose between you and my wife. Please, because if you make me choose, I will choose my wife because that's what God would tell me to do. So that's what this is talking about, and it's not saying you cut all relationship or any of that, uh, but there is a, a line you need to be careful. All right, uh, this is Matthew 10, the next question. So we'll go over to Matthew chapter 10. Very insightful question, really good one. It says this, Pastor Brian, Matthew 10 is mostly Jesus instructing his disciples for their short-term mission. That's right. The early verses of this chapter are clearly that. And then he says this, uh, the question says this, but at verse 17, but at verse 17 there is an abrupt transition to last day's instruction. Do you believe this transition is in Jesus' actual dialogue or is it Matthew's? Let me stop and answer that question. I believe it's Jesus and not Matthew, though your suggestion or your consideration is not a bad one because there are times when all the gospel writers stop and then they make editorial comments about what Jesus said. Uh, for example, in all likelihood, John 3.16, one of the you know, sort of hallmark watershed verses of the Bible, probably was not spoken by Jesus even though it's red letter in most red letter Bibles. Jesus probably did not state John 3.16. That was probably John commenting, drawing conclusions from what Jesus said in John 3, 1 through 15. So, uh, but most of our Bibles, if they're a red letter, are going to attribute that to Jesus. But the fact is, the gospel writers do on occasion pause and give commentary. I don't think that's what's going on here because of Jesus continuing to use the first person, I. What I tell you, verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, what you hear in the ear, etc. So it's not in the third person, it's still the first person. So do you believe this transition is in Jesus' actual dialogue, or is it Matthew's? I believe it's in Jesus, his, and then what do you believe is the reason for this interjection? I think, personally, that the reason for this interjection is this. I believe that in the end times, Matthew will be the most key gospel of the four gospels. And the reason why I say that is because Matthew's gospel is clearly the gospel addressed to the Jewish people. And all you have to do to be convinced of that is look at the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew's gospel, it's two long chapters. The Olivet Discourse, of course, is on the end of days, the tribulation period, the Jewish people being persecuted, all of that. And Matthew gives two chapters to it. Mark gives one chapter. Luke gives partial chapter. John doesn't even mention it. So Matthew is clearly a gospel to the Jewish people, for the Jewish people. And, who is going, and, and what group of people are going to be the focus at the end times? The Jewish people, undoubtedly. That's why Jesus says over in Matthew 24, 15, when you see, referring to the Jewish people, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let those who are in Judea flee. So if you live in Judea, if you're a Jew, get out of there. It's, it's to the Jewish people. So uh, I think that this 
Further instruction after Jesus instructed his disciples on their short-term mission is instruction that will especially be important for Jewish people living in the end times or at the, in the end of days. So I do believe it's Jesus, and I believe its role, not to say that it has no application to us today or to people in the first century, but I think it will have primary application for Jewish people seeking to live for Christ and represent Christ in the end, where they will, according to Jesus' own words in Matthew 24, you will be hated of all people for my name's sake. So I think that's the role it plays and the reason for that. Our right, next question is on Galatians chapter 1, where we were this morning. Very uh, simple, straightforward question. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, where we ended this morning, says, uh, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And the question is, why do some translations capitalize him in Galatians 1.6 and most don't? And the answer to that question is this. The reason why those English translations that do capitalize it choose to capitalize it is because they know it's referring either to God the Father or God the Son. And so to point that out, they go with a capital H. So you're turning from him who called you, or the Holy Spirit called you, the Father called you, whatever. So since it's a member of the Trinity, they capitalize it. Uh, those that don't do it, please understand that the English translations that don't capitalize is not because they're wanting to be disrespectful or they don't believe in the deity of Christ and all these you know, theories that are put forth. It's simply because they say that we are going to follow the capitalization rules in English grammar, which is you capitalize the first word of a sentence after a period, you capitalize proper names, etc., but him is not capitalized. Typically in English, him, even if you're referring to God the Father, God the Son, technically doesn't have to be, or you could even almost say, according to the rules of grammar, is not capitalized. So they're just following the rules of grammar. It's not because of any, don't use that kind of thing to say, oh, the ESV was done by a bunch of liberals, you know, that don't want to recognize the deity of Christ. That, that's nonsense. And I don't know, I didn't check the ESV. But those that do capitalize it do so because they say it's a member of the Trinity. Those that don't just say, we're following English grammar, okay? So that's why we're doing it, or not doing it. All right, next question says this. Um, what is the difference between desire, which just is, and coveting, which is a sin? We all like nice things. What is the line that we cross into sinfulness? Uh, the line that we cross into sinfulness is when we... Well, to answer this question, um, where do I want us to turn? Let's turn to Colossians. Let me show you this from Colossians. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. So I would say this, just a couple thoughts on what is the difference between desire and coveting. One answer to that question would be is, uh, is the extent to which you're willing to go to have that thing. Nothing wrong with desiring something nice. You, if you've got the money and you desire a newer car than your old 1974 Buick, not sinful to buy a newer car, but if you want it so badly that you're willing to go into debt and put your family at risk and, and uh, you, you know, uh, it ends up robbing from your wife, your kids, or whatever, now you've taken something that the desire, nothing wrong with it, but now it's become a covetous thing, so you're willing to do whatever it is to have it. 
Now, that's just an example of a car, but it could be any. That's just a material thing, but it could be anything. And in fact, notice here in Colossians 3 what Paul does. He says, verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire. Now, he's obviously talking about sexual sin there. Now, think about this. He's talking about sexuality. Is there anything wrong with desiring sexuality? No. It's God-given, God-created. It's a part of us as people. A sex drive is a part of us. Is there anything wrong with that? No. But the problem is, if you're not willing to abide by God's guidelines for sexuality. Because if you don't, now look at this, this stair-stepping. He goes from the act, fornication or sexual immorality. He's going inward, deeper and deeper. Uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In other words, if you want something so badly, that is something tangible like a car, or you want to experience something like sexuality, or whatever it is, if you want something so badly you're willing to do wrong, to experience it, or get it, it's idolatry. It's covetousness, which is idolatry. So that is the line. You're right. We all like nice things. Nothing wrong with wanting a new pair of shoes, unless you can't afford a new pair of shoes, or unless you're going to take food from your kid's mouth by buying a new pair of shoes. Now it's moved from a non-sinful desire to covetousness and even idolatry. So that would be the distinction or the difference. All right, next question says this. um, While voting is a right and privilege in the USA, I don't ever want to vote. I don't even want to vote in this presidential election. Regardless of party affiliation, how do you choose between the lesser of two evils? An egomaniac with no political experience who appears to be a racist and seemingly finds a way to retaliate against anyone who doesn't like him or simply questions him, and someone who lies and seemingly believes herself to be above the law. Well, tell us how you really feel. But, uh, so, you know, how do you handle this? Write in candidate. Listen, I feel your pain. I know that Christians are wrestling with this. You've said it well. Uh, You know, it has been said, I think it was maybe Bonhoeffer, I don't know, but I remember one uh, in, in history, one man saying, I'll never allow anyone to push me into a lesser of two evils. I won't do either evil. So if that's really the way you feel, the lesser of two evils, maybe you don't do either evil on the voting. So, you know, there's not a, obviously a biblical uh, chapter and verse answer to this. It's a dilemma that we're facing as a country. I think we all recognize that. And you have described what a lot of us feel and... Uh, so it is, uh, it is a really uh, difficult dilemma. You say, what, do a write-in candidate? Maybe that's what your conscience would have you do. Maybe you do a write-in candidate, the person you feel. But uh, I understand you asking it and appreciate the, the tension, but uh, there's no easy answer or chapter verse that says this is exactly what you do. All right, next question says this. Uh, it says, uh, Pastor Brian, how do Pentecostal charismatic third-wave theologians rationalize or support their theology and doctrines? Uh, is this good or a valid reason? Is it based on what the Bible says? Uh, it's, it'd be difficult for me to answer this question objectively because I think you know my position. Uh, I don't believe that the Bible, an accurate interpretation of Scripture, uh, can defend the Pentecostal charismatic third wave doctrines. Um, you know, I would simply say, how do they rationalize their theology or defend it? They would simply say, well, look, Jesus practiced it. He cast out demons. He gave these gifts to the apostles. There is no chapter and verse that says they will stop, which is kind of true, but 
Uh, there's no chapter and verse that says we're not going to have, we're only going to have 27 books in the New Testament either. But through various biblical uh, uh, angles, we know with confidence that the 27 books in the New Testament are the ones that belong there and that there's no additions. So to say, well, because you can't come up with a verse that just says the gift of tongues will cease in this year, that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a lot of evidence for it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 is strong evidence where Paul gives the only purpose statement in the New Testament on the gift as a sign to unbelieving Israel of their coming judgment, which came in A.D. 70. So it's strong evidence for it. But I would just say this. Uh, rather than me trying to give their evidence, because I'm as unbiased as I try to be, I probably wouldn't be accurate. Uh, I would suggest that if you want to wrestle with uh, someone attempting to do that, who's a good theologian, by the way, uh, Wayne Grudem would be a good source to... Uh, He's a quality theologian. He's a non-cessationist. Cessationist believes, uh, cessationism believes that the sign gifts have ceased. Non-cessationist says the sign gifts still go on. Grudem is a non-cessationist. He's one of the few theologians in the movement that, that try to defend it theologically. Because the fact of the matter is, and I, again, any way I say this, it's going to sound wrong. But the fact of the matter is that the movement is not... It is not moved along theologically. It's moved along experientially. It's not a theology that drives it. It's experience that drives it. So much so that um, you may not be aware of this fact, but you said, how do Pentecostal slash charismatic? Well, we kind of meld all those together now, but they really don't all go together. There has been a Pentecostal wing of Christianity for a long time, decades, decades, actually uh, over a hundred years. But the charismatic movement is a different thing. Even though we sort of assume they're the same, they're not the same. Because Pentecostalism was a denomination in Christianity for almost 100 years, just like Baptist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, etc. There were Pentecostals. But the charismatic movement is different. Because what happened with the charismatic movement is that the charismatic movement jumped denominational lines. So now you have charismatic Baptists, charismatic, you know, um, Episcopalians, Charismatic Catholics, Charismatic Mormons, because Charismaticism is based on an experience. And so it doesn't matter what your theology is. If you have the experience, usually it's speaking in ecstatic static utterance, now you're a Charismatic. And it doesn't really matter what your theology is, which is why not many theologians try to defend it theologically. But Grudem does. So if you want to try to wrestle with what evidence they use, Wayne Grudem would be the best. Now, do I believe that it's good or valid reasoning and it's based on what the Bible says? No, I don't. I don't think that the evidence supports a, a non-cessationist view. I think the evidence points very strongly to the sign gifts being a part of the apostolic era, the first century. Uh, it has a specific purpose, and that purpose has been served, and that the sign gifts are no longer operative. Uh, second follow-up question, if the sign gifts of the apostolic age have ceased, tongues, prophecy, healing, how do you explain the phenomenon present in the charismatic movement today? Excellent question. I would say that it can be explained in four different ways. One, some of it, there's no question about this, some of it is learned behavior. It's learned. I have many friends who were at one point uh, a part of the charismatic movement, and they said, you know, I went to the classes to learn how to speak in tongues. I went and learned. They taught us. 
A lot of a lot of very extreme charismatic churches will have sort of after Sunday night service, you go down in the basement and we'll teach you how to speak in tongues. It's a class. It's so it's learned behavior. You learn how to do it. Put the syllables together, say it fast enough, so some of it's learned. A second uh, thing to attribute to, some of it, again, I, I hesitate to say this because I know I'll be accused of just, you know, not being uh, objective, but the fact of the matter is some of it's fake. It's just faked. People will fake it because they, they, they don't want to be viewed as unspiritual. I've lost track of the number of people who've told me that. Brian, I used to speak in tongues because I know that the church I was in, if I didn't, I was considered unspiritual, not spirit-filled. So I just faked it, just said it, you know. What a should about a Yamaha, you know, whatever. You just fake it, say it. Just put a bunch of syllables together. A third possible uh, way to explain it is emotion. Uh, in, in medical terms, this is uh, automatism. I years ago had an EMT tell me that a very common phenomenon when they come on the scene of an accident, because of it's so emotionally charged, if it's a serious accident, is that people will often just begin to speak, rattle off things. They don't even know what they're saying, and they're just saying it so fast they don't even understand what they're saying. Well, I don't know how many, I've been in many charismatic movements, meetings, and many times they will say, just say Jesus over and over again really fast. Jesus, 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 just say it. You know, work yourself up into a frenzy and you'll get it. Well, you will get it. But it may not be really something from the Holy Spirit. It could simply be automatism or emotionally driven. And then fourthly, we cannot discount the possibility that some of it is satanic counterfeit. Satan is a master counterfeiter. He counterfeits the apostles. He counterfeits doctrine. He counterfeits churches. So why would we be surprised if he counterfeits spiritual gifts? So just because it happens doesn't automatically mean it's valid or of God because there could be any number of explanations for what is happening. And that, that doesn't do very, doesn't do justice, but maybe it helps a little bit. All right, next question is this. Uh, why do we have different color skin? We're, and then follow up, were there people of all color around Jesus? Why do we have different color skin? Well, skin shade is governed by multiple genes, and it's it's somewhat of a complex thing, but not all that complex. It has to do, it's really not all that different than, it sounds different, it sounds weird when we compare it this way, but uh, those of you who are familiar with breeding animals know that you can breed animals to get larger, have certain characteristics, and you can breed them to be smaller and have certain characteristics. Well, guess what? You can breed people to look a certain way and breed people to, to be, you know, certain characteristics. And so it comes down to genetics and then breeding and intermarriage and interrelationship, et cetera. But just understand this. I like the way the question was asked. Why do we have different color skin? Because what is a wrong way to ask this question is, why are there so many different races? That, that is completely unfounded. Beloved, understand there is one race. One race, the human race. But you and I fill out forms all the time that say, what is your race? Caucasian, African-American, Hispanic, that is bogus. There's one race. I feel like when I get those forms, I want to put human. That's what race I belong to. There's one race. But what happens is because of this different, the genetic makeup, etc., uh, if you go back to in all of this inherent in Adam and Eve and, and then Noah and his wife, etc., but in Genesis 11, as you know, our ancestors were judged by God. The languages. And then they were forced to scatter. Well, eventually, understandably, they congregated with others who share a common language. And instantaneous barriers were set up in the gene pool. Immediately. 
Not only would people tend not to marry someone they couldn't understand, but entire groups that spoke the same language would have difficulty relating to and trusting those who did not understand. Those groups then moved away or were forced away from each other into different parts of the world. So they settled here, they settled there, etc. And then everybody married in that group. And then you have the genes working together in that way. So this dispersion at Babel broke the large interbreeding group of humanity into smaller groups with less genetic variability. So each group had different mixes of genes for various physical features. All sorts of factors modified the frequency of certain combinations of genes, causing a tendency for specific characteristics to dominate. In other words, kids and grandkids shared the same basic genes their ancestors took with them from Babel. So you put a people group in one place, and that's who they marry. That's who they have kids with. Their certain gene pool. And then you have people that look African-American, Asian, Caucasian, Hispanic, whatever. But they are not different races. It's all one race. We all have the same parents, Adam and Eve, Noah and his wife. We all go back to them. But it's just a matter of breeding or having children. Breeding sounds like, you know, it's just for animals or something. But you, know, you understand what I mean. That's the basic biology of it. That's how we come to have people who have certain characteristics, look a certain way. Uh, uh, it, it goes back to that issue. All right, next question says this. Uh, we have, I have a family member who is a pastor of a small church in another state, and we've had discussions about when people leave his church, how much effort he should put into pursuing them. He struggles with guilt sometimes because of the illustration Jesus gave about the shepherd being willing to leave 99 to go after the one who strays. How do the leaders at Grace determine who to pursue after and for how long? Well, first thing to understand is that that story that Jesus told, he told it on two occasions with separate meanings. One was in Matthew 18 to talk about going after a Christian who's in sin. And the other time he used it was in Luke's gospel, I think it's chapter 15, to talk about God's love for the lost. Okay, so it's not talking about someone who, for whatever reason, leaves a church. Okay, so now we've immediately taken something that is not meant for that scenario, and then we've applied it that way. Because if you want to try to use that passage to say, oh, that's our model for chasing people who leave the church, what about in that same chapter in Luke where Jesus gives the story of the prodigal son, and what does the father do? He sits and waits at home for the son to return. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't go after him. He doesn't. So you've got to be careful about trying to use a passage that's not really addressing that issue to say this is what you do with a church member who leaves. And I can't answer for all of our leaders because uh, we're, we're all different. We all have different relationships with people. But uh, in general, I would say that we don't pursue after anyone if they decide to leave the church unless they're leaving because they're in sin. In other words, if they just, for whatever reason, maybe they, they want to go to a smaller church, or maybe they want to go to a church with different doctrine, maybe they want to go to a church, uh, you know, with different ministry opportunities, we don't chase it. Or maybe they go because they get their feelings hurt, and they're upset with the church. Um, I, I can just speak for myself. I don't chase. I, I just don't chase because uh, for years I chased and found no fruit in it whatsoever. Because you can chase people and try to make them happy, but when they're determined to leave, they're going to leave, and it just becomes a fruitless waste of time. So it's just better to say, hey, if you want to go somewhere else, no hard feelings. I can honestly say, when people leave our church, I have no, not even an ounce of harshness in my heart toward them. If you want to go, go. I would, in fact, I'd much rather you go than stay here and gripe and complain and make life miserable for us. Just go. 
And, and it won't be with hard feelings. Just go somewhere else where you can plug in, but go somewhere else that's biblical. Go some other place that's biblical. And I'm not going to chase you. That's your prerogative if you want to go somewhere. Now, if you're running because you're in sin and we're trying to get you to stop that, we will chase you. In fact, we'll go to that church and say, you ought to help us out. But we, in general, we don't chase because it's, it really doesn't accomplish much, if anything. All right, next question. I realize you'll deal with these verses eventually in our study in Galatians, but I have a discussion this week about Galatians 3 and Galatians 6.16 with a friend who believes that the church has replaced Israel. What is the easiest way to explain these two verses and other verses that are used to say that the church has replaced Israel? Um, we're almost out of time, but let me just quickly comment on this um, Galatians 3 basically says that those of us Gentiles who have placed faith in Christ, we become spiritual children of Abraham and we are blessed through Abraham. So I would simply say that that's what it's saying. It's not saying we have replaced Israel. We become spiritual children of Abraham because we receive justification just like he did, by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone. Now, even in within Galatians, it's clear that Paul recognizes that there are still Jews who are Jews and Gentiles who are Gentiles. He doesn't say Gentiles who have believed in Jesus become Jews. And that would lead to Galatians 6.16, which is one of, and I can't wait to get there. It's just going to kill me to wait months to get to Galatians 6.16 because so many people misuse this verse. And as many as walk according to this rule, that is, those of you Gentiles who believe what I've said here in Galatians and walk upon it, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Two upons, two prepositions, because it's two groups. And he's saying, peace, be and peace and mercy upon those of you Gentiles who trust in Christ and Christ alone, and peace and mercy upon the Israel of God. That's two distinct groups. So the very verse that so many people try to use to say that we are Israel says the exact opposite. In fact, consider this, 65 other times in the New Testament, the term Israel is used. In addition to this, this is 66. 65 times it's used, and all 65 times it means Jews. So what do you think it means here in Galatians 6? Jews. That's what it means. So, peace be upon those Gentiles and upon the Israel of God. Furthermore, I would say this, if you're wanting to find out if the church has replaced Israel, Galatians isn't even the book that addresses that. You need to go to the passage of Scripture that specifically addresses that, and that's Romans 9 through 11. And Paul could not be any clearer in Romans 9 through 11 that the church has not replaced Israel. So go to the passage that addresses the issue, not taking a verse out of context and try to make it say what it's not even addressing. All right, final question says this, and this is a quick one. So uh, I have a friend who visited Grace uh, some time ago, and in that service there was a prayer for some guys leaving for a mission trip. He wondered why we do that, given it seems to create a division among believers communicating that we see one type of mission work is more important than others. He asked me why we don't pray for businessmen and women who are missionaries to the business world, college and high school students who are missionaries to their campuses, teachers who are missionaries in their schools, doctors and nurses who are missionaries in the medical world, etc., what would you say to him? I would say, first of all, I appreciate the fact you recognize that as a Christian, we are to be salt and light in all of those places, in the medical community, business world. That is right on, and I would, uh, that's thrilling that you have that perspective. But I would follow it by saying, 
Someone going into the business world trying to be salt and light is not the same as someone moving his family to the Middle East, trying to learn another language, another culture, eat different food, and taking that whole radical change of life. There's a, there is a difference. I'm not saying we've all heard this since we were little. We're all missionaries. Yes, we are all missionaries, wherever the Lord places us. Places us. But listen, it's, it's a totally different thing to move to Bangladesh if you're an American, or to move to Ethiopia, or to move to Russia, or to move to Iraq. That's a whole different world. You learn a different language, a different culture. Everything is different. So the reason why we will do that with people is because we recognize that it's hard for all of us to be a missionary where we're at and to be salt and light, but it ratchets it up a lot when you're going into a completely different culture, a different part of the world, etc. So we don't have any hesitation making that distinction, praying with people who are going to some other part of the world, and we don't pray for every doctor, nurse, businessman. doesn't mean we minimize what they do, but it's just comparing apples and oranges about trying to live in another part of the world where you are an alien and a stranger. All right, great questions, and now I'm hesitant to ask you to stand to close in prayer. All right, so stay seated. I'll close in prayer, and we'll let you go. All right, let's pray. Father, may we really catch the perspective of this last question, uh, the part of it that says that we are, uh, whatever you call us to be, students, businessmen, businesswomen, teachers, uh, doctors, nurses, athletes, whatever it is, uh, you have called us to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And some you've called to do that in faraway places, in very hard places, uh, with a different language, a different culture, uh, different food, different practices, all of that. So may whatever you've called us to, whatever you've directed us to, may we be faithful so we can say with Paul at the end of our lives, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. May that be true of each and every one of us. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.